Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Welcome to the third investing masterclass on the Australian Investors Podcast. In the next 60 minutes, you'll go on a deep dive with me into the topic of global small caps with some of Australia's top experts. On today's show, we've got Nick Cregan of Fairlight Asset Management, Max Mulholland-Lick from Evergreen Consultants, Tobias Bucks from Osbill Investment Management, and Drew Meredith from Waddle Partners. In the next 60 minutes, we'll go on a journey to talk about what you need to know before investing in the global small cap market, how you can pull it apart, and the difference between small, mid and large caps globally, why global small caps tend to be fruitful hunting grounds for active management, and how to perform due diligence on a global small caps fund and position it in your portfolio. To help us navigate through the global small cap universe, which is actually very big, We'll be joined by Nick Cregan, the founding partner of Fairlight Asset Management, who will walk us through the sector overall. He'll introduce us to the overall global small cap sector and how he thinks about the market. Then Ausbill's portfolio manager, Tobias Bucks, takes us through the different options that are available and the different strategies that are used and how he and his team identify strategies for mispricing. Max Mulholland-Lick is an investment consultant at Evergreen in Sydney. He'll explain to us the importance of due diligence and how to, I guess, research the fund managers themselves when they're presenting similar types of views or information. And finally, our friend of the show and experienced financial planner, Drew Meredith, will explain how he uses small cap funds in client portfolios, where they sit in the the buckets, and what questions you should ask yourself before investing. I really do hope you enjoy this Global Small Caps Masterclass on the Australian Investors Podcast. First up, you'll hear from Nick. Nick's appeared on the Australian Investors Podcast before, but here's a brief intro into him and what he does. Uh, G'day, my name's Nick Cregan. I'm the founding partner of Fairlight Asset Management. We started the business almost five years ago now. Uh, Prior to that, I was with Evans & Partners for four years. I was co-portfolio manager on the global 
uh, fund there uh, alongside Stephen Ar- Arnold, who now works at now founded Aorus. Mm-hmm. Uh, previous to Evans and Partners, I spent a long time with Schroders, so almost 10 years. Uh, launched the smaller microcap funds for them alongside a chap called David Wannis and was invited to work with Jenny Jones, who is one of the best small cap track records in the US. And under her tutelage, learned a great deal working on Wall Street, been in equity markets for around 20 years, almost half of that in international markets, and uh, have a deep passion for equity investing. Global small caps is an area that I'm quite familiar with uh, from a research perspective. I know there are, it's kind of like we just talked off air about a dearth of funds that are available, high quality investment managers like yourself. Can you give us kind of like an overview of like what is the sector and I guess why uh, do people invest in the sector? Yeah, really good question. And you and I have known each other for quite some time now, I think almost four or five years, I think, mm-hmm. when we when we first met and we've had this conversation over a long period of time. Why why are Australian investors so comfortable with global large cap and, and less enamoured by global small and mids? Mm-hmm. I think it's really, uh, to your point, been a lack of A, options and B, education about the space. So global small and mid caps um, as an asset class is about 40 times the size of the equivalent here in Australia. So mm-hmm. this mid and mid cap space here in Australia um, by global standards, it's quite small. Um, and as we know, equity markets, um, Australian equity markets make up about 3% of the global opportunity set. Um, and so Australians' first call is when they're going offshore is to think about the big names, the, the Apples and, mm. the, and the Microsofts, et cetera, which makes perfect sense. And it's only now that um, investors, especially more sophisticated investors, are moving down the market cap spectrum a little bit and considering global small and mid caps. Um, so it's an, op- it's an opportunity set which we think is um, incredibly powerful, uh, but it's been largely ignored by Australian investors until really the last few years. Um, so we're trying to provide an opportunity there and educate Australian investors about uh, exactly that opportunity set and what it means in their portfolios. What would you consider as a global small cap? Yeah, so global small caps and then global mid caps is where we, we sort of invest. Um, the the um, definition by MSCI sort of uses um, percentage of the asset class. Uh, but to, to frame it up with, with dollar terms, and this surprises people pretty often, is that a global mid cap in the US is up to $30 billion in market cap. So that would be solidly ASX 200. Mm. So people often ask us, you know, aren't um, global small mid caps a bit riskier? Are the business uh, models a little flimsier? Uh, how do they do in the tough times? Well, our answer to that is if you're comfortable with the risk of the ASX 200, you'll definitely be comfortable with the risk of the global small and mid cap market. Uh, it's really just a, a big uh, asset class as compared to the Australian equivalents. Mm. So why do people invest in uh, global small caps and mid caps? Like what is the appeal? Is it growth? Is it income? And how do they sit in portfolios as well? It's more about growth than it is income. Uh, so the, the the dividend yield for the asset class sits at about 1%. Uh, and it's often, uh, I think we'll probably get into this a bit later, but around a third of that index actually isn't profitable. Uh, hmm. So you're not uh, investing in that space for the income. You really, what you're trying to do is either have a passive exposure and uh, get the uplift from the asset class or what we're doing, which is a more targeted approach in trying to sort of eke out the the hidden gems, if you like, amongst the malaise of thousands and thousands of businesses. And within that, what we're really trying to do and what I think most investors with uh, exposure to the index is trying to do is, is try and get that growth uplift in, uh, as compared to the, um, to the large cap index. What macroeconomic factors tend to influence the sector? Well, um, like all equities, as we're seeing at the moment, uh, interest rates have a bit to do with it. Uh, so uh, interest rates are the equivalent of gravity to equity. So as interest rates are increasing, uh, investors have an alternative to parking their 
their assets either in cash or in equities. Um, so they've got, they can buy bonds or they can uh, sort of have similar exposure. So that's gonna move things around a little bit. What's kind of interesting though, is that um, large caps and mid caps tend to move in slightly different uh, ways, depending on where the conversation is, uh, is pointed in macro. Mm-hmm. So whilst global large cap and small and mid caps are correlated, uh, there is a diversification benefit in, from investing in both. In fact, you can get an uplift to your alpha by, by having a 75-25 blend large cap, mid cap, without a d- demonstrable increase in your risk. And the reason for that is that global large caps tend to get buffed around a little bit more by the conversations that you see in the media. So um, I think the conversations that we're currently having in, say, the US and China about the possibilities of Taiwan, that'll move global large caps around a little bit more, whereas global small and mid caps tend to be more localised markets. So mm. it's dependent on you know, what's happening in, in, in Texas or in, in London or in France for these businesses that are op- sort of operating the more local markets. So there is a diversification benefit to holding both. What is the historical return profile like for mm. global small and mid caps? Mm. And I guess you just added partly the, the kind of the risk return profile, but kind of like what's the context around that? So the long-term returns to the global small and mid-cap market have been actually pretty attractive. Uh, so about 10% per annum over a long period of time, which depending on what time frame you're looking at, is about a 1% to 2% uplift over large caps. Um, so that's the index return over a long period of time. It's actually the superior return to investing in large caps, which is a little bit different to the Australian investors' experience. Australian, mm. I, I think it's, um, uh, I think it's, uh, Finland. Finland is the only other, I think, developed market uh, in the European, US, Australian complex where this is true. So Australian investors um, have experienced large caps outperforming small caps over long periods of time. It's actually the opposite in most developed markets. So um, small and mid cap global markets have outperformed large caps. Um, so the return profile is about, about 10%. Um, we've delivered a little bit better than that. So the return um, profile from an active fund sits at about 12%, which marries quite nicely with the EPS profile of the fund, which has been somewhere between 12 and 15% over the last five years. So global small mid caps, it sounds like is a, a big market, it's a big sector. Mm. How could you cut it up? Are there subsectors of this? How do you think about that? Yeah, sure. There's about 5,300 stocks in the opportunity set in mm. the global small and mid cap uh, MSCI uh, index. So there's a lot to choose from there. And with that number of stocks, you can uh, appreciate it's highly, highly diversified. In fact, the, um, the largest firm within that index only makes up about 30 basis points of the total index. So very, very diversified. The question is, do you want that level of diversification? So you can take mm. two approaches. You can either have a passive approach, which is perfectly fine, average into an index over time, and you will participate in the growth of those underlying businesses. Uh, or you can take a slightly different approach, which is to say, well, um, how do we maybe reduce the risk of our investing, but also participate in the upside of maybe the better businesses that, that, that sit within that index? Now, as I mentioned before, about a third of our index doesn't make any money. So it makes perfect sense to me to strip those out. Uh, maybe they'll make money one, one day, but you're really buying a business model rather than a business mm. uh, at that point. So uh, we strip those out. And then we had a really good look at where did the majority of the returns come from for investors over a long period of time? And we skew our investments into those sectors, so light industrials, um, retail, uh, healthcare, and technology is where we can find those businesses that genuinely deliver a return, a cash return on their capital invested of over 15%. Um, and within that, we, we concentrate our investing um, pretty meaningfully. It's a bit of a reminder to investors. Sometimes they think a diversification is the one free lunch you can get in investing, which we agree with, but you don't need to be quite as diversified as people think. Mm. You get most of the diversification benefits 
from the index at about 20 securities. And then over that, um, you, you, you sort of move down the diversification curve. We invested with a, with a 30 to 40 stock mindset, which gives us enough diversification, but also allows our best ideas to come to the fore. So in what ways do you measure diversification then within the asset class? You said there are 5,000 securities in the universe. How would you measure diversification? Yeah, I mean, measuring diversification um, for us is a little bit different from what you get from the index. So measuring it for the index is pretty simple. Um, this, uh, 30 basis points is the largest stock in that in that index. So highly, highly diversified by both underlying sector um, and by business model and by business. For Fairlight, it's a little bit different. What we're looking for is less about a GICS definition of our diversification from an economic um, uh, exposure point of view mm -hmm. uh, and more about sort of how do we define what our uh, actual exposure is to an underlying um, subsector of the, of the business, of the economy rather. So um, whilst from a gigs point of view, you might have exposure to say auto, we'll split that between sort of auto OEM, auto retail, auto um, uh, auctioneer, auto insurance. Um, and then we can understand uh, rather than a sort of, I'll call it a a simple gigs exposure. It's more subset of mm. the subset of where our exposures are from an economic point of view. So that's our economic point exposure, but that doesn't tell you everything. You've also got your trading exposure, diversification, and there we run a, we can invest up to 40 securities. We run a 40 by 40 correlation matrix, which tells us within our portfolio where are our major exposures from a correlation trading point of view. And that becomes quite important for things like uh, a UK-based um, portal, so we, we invest in both AutoTrader and Rightmove. From a trading point of view, that the, the uh, correlation there is incredibly stark, uh, but they serve completely different parts of the market. One's obviously uh, exposed to auto consumer, and the other is exposed to less so consumer and more the real estate market um, in, in property. But we have to be aware of those exposures. So we look at it from an underlying economic point of view and also from a trading point of view. Mm. How about then in terms of fees across the sector? Um, how, like, what is the range, I guess, the spectrum of different vehicles to get exposure to the sector? Yeah, sure. I mean, you've got all the way from a, almost a passive exposure or a smart beta exposure. You can get passive um, exposure as cheap as 15 basis points and move up the spectrum a little bit to a more smart beta approach. You're sort of looking at 50 to 60 basis points all the way into sort of concentrated active. Uh, and it becomes more expensive in concentrated active for the very simple reason that um, capacity is an infinite. Um, mm. So if you're running a concentrated book, uh, you can run maybe three or $4 billion in that strategy and it caps out. Um, and so up at, at that range, you're looking at sort of maybe up to 1.25, 1.3% as a base fee. And then very often you're looking at a, um, at a performance fee over the MSCI SMID uh, index or an index that a, a manager might choose that hopefully is appropriate for the asset class. But how did you determine for Fairlight, you know, uh, your capacity constraints as a global small and mid-cap manager, mm -hmm. how do you determine how much is too much, I guess? We took a really conservative view here. Uh, and the reason for that is we want to keep our product super tight and super nimble and be able to outperform. Uh, we've got a performance fee attached to our product for that exact reason. So it keeps us honest from a capacity point of view. The way we came about it was less about liquidity. So to give you a bit of a, uh, a, a look under the kimono here is essentially the fund, because it skews a little bit towards mid cap or the higher end of the small cap market, the weighted average market cap across the portfolio has been between 11 and 15 billion over time. So the daily liquidity has been somewhere between 80 and $100 million in, in daily liquidity. That means mm -hmm. our 
fund can be liquidated very, very quickly, which implies quite a large capacity number. So instead of doing that, what we said is, look, the smallest business we're likely to own is about a billion dollars of market cap, and we don't want to trigger uh, a 10% ownership of any one fund. So we don't want to step over that hurdle because you start getting into regulatory problems about takeover notices, et cetera, in different ju- jurisdictions. If you wanted to own that business at an average weight in the portfolio, what does that imply? It implies about US $4 billion in capacity. So we think somewhere between four and $6 billion is probably the number. Uh, but as a reminder, that's in- pretty conservative because the weighted average market cap across the portfolio is somewhere between 11 and 15. Mm. It gives you an idea of just how conservative we've been on that. But we're very happy with that. Um, we'd be absolutely stoked if we got to $4 billion in FUM. And I think that's a number that allows us to continue to be really nimble and uh, continue to outperform. Fantastic. Well, Nick, thanks for joining me on the show. Absolute pleasure. And it's, uh, it's great to see you again after all these years of, uh, of COVID and shutdowns. Likewise, man. Now that Nick has primed us on the ins and outs of global smalls, let's jump to Tobias Bucks, who has a unique perspective and walks us through his role at Ausbuild before telling us how he breaks apart the market and finds those opportunities. Hi, I'm Toby Bucks. I work at Ausbuild. Um, I run the Global Small Cap Fund at Ausbuild with my partner Simon. We've been running Global Small Caps for a long time. We ran them back in the UK. And it's an asset class that I really enjoy and I love doing. Toby, how would you break down the global small caps uh, sector? If you think about it, there are uh, assumed thousands of securities that you can invest in. How do you think about breaking that down? So global small caps have a market capitalization between 500 million US dollars and around 10 billion US dollars. So if we compare that towards Australian small caps to give people a frame of reference, they're slightly bigger than Mm. Aussie small caps. We're at the mid end to Australian small caps. The key differentiating points and the opportunity out there is that you get a lot more differentiated businesses overseas than you get in Australia, which is dominated by excellent minerals, financials and healthcare businesses. Overseas, we get a lot of information technology. So the hardware, both the data common semis and all the devices, but also all the software and all the new modern business models that have come out in the last 15 years. They're really overrepresented in our opportunity set compared to Australian small caps. We've also got a lot of niche industrials. Manufacturing in Australia is probably not where people would like it to be or where it's been previously. But overseas, particularly in Europe, Japan and the US, there's a lot of manufacturing. It's almost 20% of our index is niche manufacturing businesses, which in small caps gives you great opportunity to get growth. So there's some differences. You get a larger opportunity set. Mm-hmm. There's almost 3,700 companies. And also you get a lot more exposure to IT, software, healthcare, and niche businesses. If we think about that, that's a, it's a big universe. Uh, how do you, I guess, how can you define some of the core ways to get exposure to the sector? So are there different strategies that work well or that have tended to, to stick over time? So from the last 20 years, MSCI has produced a world small cap index, which has sort of become the benchmark for this sector, this asset class. Um, There's broad ways to play it. On a completely passive basis, you can buy an index ETF, and there's providers of that. Or you can buy a more smart beta approach, Mm -hmm. uh, or you can buy an active manager. One of the peculiarities of small caps, because of the index effect and some other things I'm not going to get into, but trading costs, it's very difficult for the smart beta or the passive strategies to replicate the success of the active managers. It just costs more to run the product as opposed to a large cap product. In the active management space, you've got a few different strategies. 
Um, you do have some value-orientated strategies, you've got more core strategies, and then you've got more niche strategies. Mm. Um, in niche, I mean people who have a very specialist approach to their um, knowledge and understanding of what businesses they want to invest in. So some approaches say, look, we can't invest in those businesses, we don't understand them, we can't invest in those businesses, we don't understand them, so we'll only invest in this small area. So that's one approach. And at the other end, uh, and then, then you have core growth managers and value managers. Value managers have tended to struggle in the asset class since um, right. over the last 10 years and over the last 30 years. And um, I'm, I'm not here to understand why or where that is or preach it out, but they do tend to struggle. Core and growth managers have managed to deliver active returns and they've generally focused on higher quality businesses have got the ability to fund future growth and take advantage of their opportunities. Mm -hmm. That's where we focus, because we've seen over time that's where you get the best success. And I think one of the keys in the asset class that shouldn't be overlooked is if you're buying small companies, it's because you want to buy the next Amazon or the next CSL. It's not because you want to buy a business that's slightly cheaper on PE and you think it's going to go up a bit, or you don't think the earnings are that discounted by the market over the next five years. That's not what makes good returns in small caps. You get good returns in small caps by buying the next Amazon and the next CSL. That's why we favor a core growth approach to go and find those businesses that we think can be the next mm. CSL. What would you say are some of the, the risks of the various strategies? So you mentioned passive, it's probably hard to replicate the index. Uh, how about you know, if we look at value managers and you know, core growth, how do you want to define it? How do you think about that? Small caps have a lot more idiosyncratic factor risk. So it's a lot more about what the board and the management team are doing at the company that can affect the share price, as opposed to a much larger company like ExxonMobil or Amazon or Walmart, where the idiosyncratic factor is a lot less. It's a lot less more about, about what the management are doing. It's a lot more about what the economy is doing. Yeah. And we can see that from different results. Because small caps tend to be quite niche and esoteric businesses, um, you know, if you hire and train 10 new salespeople with a good new product, you're going to get a good return whether the market goes down or up. That's mm -hmm. going to be hard and there's all the other factors and things to consider. But at the same time, there's a lot more of an ability for a management to change their own company's earnings. And so you get less factor risk with small caps than you do with large caps. Having said that, because small caps tend to be small, and large caps in terms of their earning profile and what they do on the ground. Mm. Their earnings are more at risk, regardless of the economic cycle, than Walmarts are or mm. ExxonMobil, so it's more risky. As a result, when the market goes up or the market goes down, like this year, small caps do tend to sell, sell off more than large caps and they do tend to go up more than, more than large caps. The more stocks products are exposed to, the less they can to have that, that earnings risk and the more they can diversify. But at the same time, mm. they're going to dilute themselves out of their best ideas. Mm. It is important to note that small companies sometimes haven't been listed that long or the management's not that well known or due to their sheer size, they could be disrupted themselves very quickly. So there's more risk in the companies, mm. but that's more than offset by the returns. So Toby, there are you know, many great investors that we can think of domestically here in Australia, if we think of Australian equities or what have you. Um, global small caps uh, is an area that maybe some private investors do look at quite, 
quite in depth, um, and many advisors do look to invest in the sector. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on who you look to as a professional in the sector for information, research, or even just investment philosophy and process. So for current up-to-date stuff, um, I'm looking across the whole market and the team and our investment houses. And there's lots of, I think, really interesting and well-placed individuals who look at sub-sectors or, or, or have a real understanding of a certain area, and that's important. Mm. In terms of process and philosophy for global small caps, Simon and I have you know, built the process up over many years together, and we started working together back in London. And I think what's important for small caps is to understand two key points. I mean, might be really obvious, but one, you've got, you're a small cap investor, so you, you need to be a good bottom-up small cap fundamental investor mm. because you're buying interesting stories and you're making advantage of the fact, taking advantage of the fact that the market's efficient, but it has no imagination. You can buy in the next CSL or the next Replogen or the next Trade Desk or the next Amazon. At the same time, you're running a global fund, so you're exposed to different global environments and the macro environment, whether it's the GFC or the dot-com or the recent interest rates we've seen in the current year where the Fed seems to be wanting to quash the economy and increase unemployment, and that's affecting expectations for corporate earnings. In all these different environments, you're a global fund manager. And so for those two key skills, Simon and I, are really thankful of how we were taught and brought up at Bearings. We do think the team that, that was there, it's the team's changed now. So our old boss is actually, a few others have retired, mm-hmm. um, but we really looked to them for guidance, for understanding how to invest. And they taught us some really interesting things that, that we use right now and, and form the core of our, our, our philosophy. Trying to find and work out what businesses can do in the next three to four years is really important to generate returns. And we learn a lot of that there. Mm-hmm. Um, on the global management side, I, I was really lucky to work at Newton Investment Management in London. I worked for a guy called Paul Butler, who ran global equity money um, for over 20 years um, and had a great track record and is well known in the industry in global equity. I was really lucky on that team to learn some things that form the core of our process right now in terms of managing risk and understanding the macro environment to try and take advantage of that. Everybody's got their own mentors, but I'm really grateful for those. So you said, uh, was it 3,000 or 4,700 before? 3,700. 3,700 different companies that you could potentially invest in. How do you go about filtering or screening out companies in that universe? So the world's a big place and it's quite difficult to go and see companies as much as you can in Australia. So I think those are two important points to consider. As a result, we tend to not want to invest at the very small cap end, the micro cap end, because it's difficult to really get to know those businesses and they tend to be quite small and local. We want businesses that have got a good product, understand their region and are growing globally. Mm. So what we're looking for is businesses between that 500 mil to that five bill. We don't want to buy them when they're already big. We want them to buy them when they're small and they can grow. So we screen the market for that. Are you liquid enough for us to invest? So do you trade over 2 million bucks a day? It's a deep and liquid market. A lot of our holdings trade over 150 million US dollars a day. So deep and liquid. We screen for liquidity. And then to make sure that you can invest in that business. And then the next things are kind of up to you as an investor. If you're going to use quantitative tools to help you invest, you've got to take your philosophy and that's got to drive your qualitative and your quantitative investment process. Your quantitative investment process, which might start the screening, is really what makes you tick and what you're after. 
So for us, we've got a particularly niche focus. We want to buy the next CSL and the next Amazon. So over many years, we've developed a proprietary screen to look for those. But effectively, as you can imagine, we're looking for things that are niche leaders. So they would already be generating very good returns on invested capital and strong margins and other metrics of quality that we'd look at. But then we are unrecognized growth investors. We want to buy the next CSL when the market doesn't think it is so we can mm. make the most amount of money. But to do that, you need to make sure that growth is unrecognized. So we want to understand how the market's currently pricing that company and we want to look for the ones where the market's not giving it that much credence. And so there's various factors that you want to look at. Obviously, another important note is whatever philosophy you have, you need to build different screens for different things. So an industrial business is very different to a, a bank mm. and a bank's very different to a non-bank financial and they're all very different to a real estate company or a biotech. So you need to have different screens for different sectors. It's an interesting area. It's increased a lot over the last 20 years. For us, the main benefit of screens hasn't changed, which is idea generation. Mm. You want to go and find a new idea that is acutely driven by your investment philosophy. That way, you'll always stay true to your investment philosophy and you're not looking at ideas over here or over there. And because we've got a really strong screen and really good idea generation, we don't take ideas from anyone. So we don't want to take ideas from brokers or other fund managers or anyone. We come up with our own. And one of the key benefits of that is we know it's not an already over-owned idea. Okay, so um, my final question, Toby, is more around the historical risk and return profile of the asset class and um, I guess how you see that. Um, maybe you could take that over whatever time frame you like, whether it's five, 10, whatever. How do you, um, I guess, study that and how do you think about that? So there's a number of studies um, and separating the asset classes. Um, one of the best to focus on is the recent NSCI, which goes back to 20, um, 2000. So it's over 20 years. But the data can be seen in US small cap indices where the data goes back a long way and you get very similar type returns, which makes sense. So to put it in reference, global small caps generate about 10% a year, 3% more than global large caps. And I think that's the key point. The last 20 years has been slightly less since the period since the 50s, but it's the point that it's a 3% premium to global large caps. You get that growth premium and that small cap premium in your return. And that's been true. Global small caps deliver roughly the same historic return to Australian small caps and or the Australian large cap index. Hmm. So it's a similar type return, but you get far less volatility in global small caps as you do the Australian equity indices. And the reason being um, Australia is quite driven by demand for commodities and the underlying growth in Australia, which has been very strong. And it's quite dominated into financials and interest rate risk and, and commodity demand. Globally, we're exposed to the US, Europe, different parts of the world, Japan, and a lot more differentiated by sector. So as a result, you get a lot more diversification in global small caps. So although you get the same return as Australian small caps, you get a far better diversification and a much better sharp ratio. But compared to global large caps and global mid caps, you get an even better sharp ratio in global smalls. Because global large caps are diversified by global small caps, there isn't that much an improvement in diversification. Mm. And so the 3% premium you get from global smalls a year as an annualized return to global large 
is huge. When you compound it over many years, say for example, over 20 years, that's double your return. Mm. Great. Toby, you've been full of insights, so thanks for joining me. Thanks, I really appreciate it. Now that we've heard from two fund managers, it might be worth jumping to an investment consultant, someone who provides research on these fund managers each and every day. Max Mulholland Lick is a consultant at Evergreen Consultants in Sydney and explains how he and his research team go about identifying and performing due diligence on global small cap fund managers. Hi, my name is Max. Uh, I'm a research consultant for Evergreen Consultants. So we're a, a boutique asset consultant, primarily focusing on providing research solutions and, and managed account services to independent financial advisors. So my role is sort of split 50-50 between uh, manager selection and then looking after um, clients. So if we look at global small caps in particular as an, a sub-asset class, if you like, what are the potential sources of return that investors should be looking for? Mm. And I guess, how do managers provide our performance? Yeah, good question. Um, so I think small caps in general is probably more of an asset class dominated by growth returns as opposed to income. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to large caps, smalls are typically paying less dividends. Um, so in terms of the, I guess, drivers of outperformance for, for a manager, I think that the key thing with small caps is the comparative inefficiency of the market. So there are more, more small companies than there are large companies out there, and there are less professional analysts and researchers covering small caps than large caps. So that creates an, uh, a market of comparative inefficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of opportunities created through that. Uh, it really makes a good case for active management as opposed to a passive approach. I think you know the, the role of strong fundamental bottom-up analysis as opposed mm. to just taking a shotgun approach to, to buying an index is, is really key here. With regards to active management in global small caps, um, what would you say are the key determinants of, of success in generating alpha? Mm. Well, given that comparative inefficiency is definitely an asset class where strong active managers are able to dif- differentiate, differentiate themselves and you know really add alpha, mm-hmm. um, I think it's necessary to have a capacity constraint on the amount of funds that you're going to raise given the Ill- illiquidity of the asset class. Um, so yeah, I think that the strength of fundamental bottom-up analysis um, experience within the sector specifically, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to just investing experience in general, small cap specific experience uh, mm. and yeah an eye to capacity mm. how about in terms of so if we talk about small caps versus large caps uh, how about in terms of i guess the risk profile there do we expect greater volatility uh, how do you see that yeah through time uh, over the very long term not just the last sort of 10 years small caps in general have a higher volatility but also a higher return yeah. um, it kind of does depend on on when you're looking at for example over the last 10 years large caps have had better return and less volatility. Okay. Um, I think that might be an outcome of potentially that QE environment um, where large caps and just index investing was you know, a, quite an easy way to, to, mm. to make good money. Mm. How about then in terms of uh, speaking of you know, quantitative easing or just any type of macroeconomic factors that might affect global small caps? Mm. Um, you could take that maybe this question maybe relative to large caps in the, in the global space. How, do, how does the macroeconomic uh, picture affect small caps? Yeah, small caps are definitely uh, more sensitive to economic conditions than large caps. Uh, I think part of that is due to their comparative, um, you know, uh, or large caps efficiencies of scale, which yep. small caps don't often have to the same extent. Uh, and yeah, they, they typically have a, a higher beta to, to markets. So if we've got uh, global small caps, which can sometimes be more volatile, mm. but the long term returns tend to skew 
favorably, mm. how, uh, how long should investors be thinking about allocating to these types of managers? Yeah, as you said, I think, you know, given the elevated volatility, but also the, uh, you know, increased chance for or, or increased potential for returns, mm-hmm. I think that you do need to take a long-term view somewhere between five to seven years or a full market cycle, whatever that might mean to one investor. So as a researcher, obviously you get to speak to so many different fund managers, mm-hmm. uh, not just in global small caps, across the, the, the spectrum of asset classes. Um, but if we just hone in on that, that asset class for a moment, what are maybe two or three questions that you like to ask managers when they come into your office and say, you know, we're here, we want money, we want a rating. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what are you asking them? What kind of hard questions do you see kind of get the best results for you? Yeah, I think the most obvious one is on capacity, you know, going back to the il- yeah. uh, comparative illiquidity of, of small caps. If a manager is planning to raise mm. billions and billions of dollars, um, they probably can't take advantage of the opportunities that that asset class is providing. So, you know, clear capacity constraints in mind from when they're starting out designing the product and not a moving goalpost of, of capacity. For sure. Um, secondly, I think sector specific experience, you know, having experience within small caps, not just equities in general, um, mm-hmm. is definitely relevant. And then thirdly, uh, on the attribution side, I think asking for, for stock and sector attribution and, um, you know, having, having a good look at that to make sure that their return series hasn't been dominated by one sort of unicorn that they might have gotten lucky on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I think the consistency of the investment philosophy and process being applied within small caps is really important. Uh, mm-hmm. And attribution is one good way of making sure that they've actually got a repeatable approach and, you know, they're not just getting lucky on, on one or two stocks. Yeah. And so every time that you meet with a manager, do you request an updated attribution report from them? It's definitely something that we look at closely. I mean, if the material that they're not giving us doesn't have um, at least you know enough of what we're looking for, we will ask for it specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And what do you? What, so ideally, you you don't want it to be skewed to any one individual uh, company or investment. So, what are you ideally looking for in that? I mean, it, it sort of depends on on what you're looking at. I think. You know, if you're uh, if you're if the manager in question has a portfolio of thirty to forty companies, you know, you want sort of contributions uh, more often than not. Mm. Uh, and where there are contributions, them not being yet yeah, one or two stocks, consistency of of hit rate, I think, is is quite important. Um, How about if it's hedged or unhedged? Do you look at that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the time. Choosing whether to go with a hedged or, or unhedged product, often a manager will offer both, right? Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the overall portfolio context and, and your view of currency hedging on the whole. Mm-hmm. I think we consider, we consider that at the portfolio level rather than just at the sort of specific asset class level and finding a hedging ratio that, that, that makes sense to us um, on the entire whole por- portfolio basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes we may go with hedge, sometimes we might go with unhedged, and that's kind of dependent on the rest of the portfolio. So you mentioned... Uh, maybe increased volatility, some people would hear that and they would think, okay, that means more risk. Hmm. What are some of the common risks that investors and advisors should be aware of when they're looking to allocate to this sector? Yeah, that illiquidity risk is genuine uh, and you need to make sure that your manager has really got a good eye to that. Mm-hmm. Um, small caps, going back to their economic sensitivity again, can have sharper drawdowns than large caps. So I think you know, uh, sizing your position within small caps appropriately um, and in line with your time horizon and, and tolerance for, for drawdowns is important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, small caps have higher volatility than large, usually more sharper drawdowns and a higher beta, more economic sensitivity. So those are all things to think about. How about in terms of, uh, if we just zoom in on that liquidity for a moment, do you look at things like days to liquidate or any type of measures across a portfolio of 
you know, what's the least liquid position in a portfolio? And I guess, how do you sense check what the managers are actually telling you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, days to liquidate is one way of doing it. Um, but yeah, just drilling into the, the manager and asking their process around assessing liquidity. And it goes back to the capacity constraint as well. Yeah. Um, you know, some managers might be playing in the smaller end of the small cap market compared to another. Um, so it's all sort of contextual, I think. I mean, small caps is a company typically anywhere between 300 million to 2 billion. Yeah. Um, bigger than that would be more mid cap territory and smaller than that would be micros. So it is a bit dependent on the context, but yeah, ensuring that the manager's process is robust enough to, to deal with those liquidity issues in the context of their own capacity constraints is, is the important thing. One thing that's really important is obviously managing risk, whether it's at the product level or it's at the asset class level as a portfolio construction. Uh, how do you think about the risk management processes, be they for a manager or just in this sector in general? I mean, I, I think most of the products that are available to Australian investors within um, global small caps are long only in nature. Mm -hmm. So the levers that they can pull on, you know, protecting downside is, is usually just a cash position. And even then, um, most managers uh, would be fully invested at all times. Mm. So I think you've really got to think about it from controlling the risk uh, on your own portfolio, portfolio basis from an asset allocation perspective. Um, but some of the things that the managers can do within the asset classes, obviously, you know, you want diversification across your portfolio. There can be maximum portfolio constraints per stock or, or per region. Um, I think a lot of the time, given given the the nature of small caps as as a sector where stock selection can really drive you know your performance and not be dominated by things like sector selection or, or potentially regional mm. um, uh, currency exposures or, or, or regional exposure, um, it's really one where you want to maximise your idiosyncratic risk on the stock yeah. selection side. So trying to yeah, eliminate or diversify away the other risks. Mm. How about then when it comes to uh, correlation of this asset class? Mm. You know, most people will be thinking global equities. Um, they probably have a large cap exposure. Uh, they may even have a passive exposure to global equities. Mm. Global small caps very, very popular um, in, for advisors to use mm. for that growth. Uh, how do you think about the long-term correlation and, and mm. I guess where does it fit amongst those key uh, asset classes? I think, you know, equities in general are usually correlated to each other. So global small caps are still highly correlated to Australian equities and global equities. Mm. Um, when it comes to fixed interest, there is a long term, you know, low or negative correlation to, to government bonds, for example, um, depending on, you know, the market conditions. Yeah. And as we've seen more recently, those, those correlations can sort of be tested mm. um, through time. But I think one thing that's important is that we think about correlation in, in two different ways, not just the correlation of total returns, which I think everyone's well aware of, but also the correlation of active returns. And that's, you know, the correlation of one manager's out or underperformance uh, versus another. And even though global small caps might have a high correlation to, to, to equities or, or other growth assets, often that correlation of active returns can be low or, or sometimes negative to, to other managers or, or large caps. Um, so that's still very useful from a diversification point of view. In terms of... Uh, hedged versus unhedged. We, mm. we touched on this briefly, but in terms of unhedged versus hedged, is there any, uh, I guess in the long term, what, is there any notable difference between the, the returns of those two structures or those two, I guess, profiles? Yeah, good question. I probably don't have yeah. the best answer for that. I think in some ways, I mean, some managers will have active currency hedging, which yeah. can, you know, change the, yeah. the composition of returns quite dramatically. But in terms of something being fully edged or fully unhedged, you know, it depends a lot on the period that you're looking at. Yeah. So I found that when we were at uh, Zenith, we would find that um, over the long term, global equities, unhedged versus hedged, I'm not sure 
investing at a, like a, where the Aussie dollar was way out. Yeah. Um, it's basically neg- negligible. Like yeah. It, it's, don't overthink it, basically. I think it always depends on your entry point, really, yeah. when it comes to hedging. Um, choosing to, to hedge or, or, or unhedge at a given point of time is really, really contextual to the, to the period you're in. So, Max, if, if you imagine, I guess, an advisor or an investor thinking of allocating, say, 10% of their portfolio to global small caps, be it hedged or unhedged, how would you expect that allocation to change the composition of a portfolio? Mm. Yeah, I think in general, you would expect it to, to increase the potential return, but also the risk yeah. um, and therefore extend your time horizon. Um, I think 10% would probably be too high on a 60-40 basis, you mm-hmm. know, in that traditional sort of 60 growth, 40% defensive. Mm-hmm. 10% would, would certainly be beyond our, our tolerance. I think we would be somewhere between 3 to 5%. Okay. Um, we've actually sold global small caps recently on the view that, you know, global um, global growth is going to slow and, and, and that, that's added value. Uh, on a 100% growth portfolio basis, 10% might be more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it definitely depends on that context. And yeah, it would increase your expected volatility, return, and time horizon. Well, Max, thanks for taking some time to join me today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Finally, let's hear from our friend and expert financial planner, Drew Meredith. In the next 10 minutes or so, he'll explain how to use a global small cap fund in your portfolio. To start, Drew explains where he thinks this asset class should sit in a portfolio. I see it as a complement to a core or large cap allocations within global equity portfolios. Uh, so yeah, within a broader portfolio. And it's a complement because it's a much more diverse but also very different asset class that has different characteristics. What would you say is the, when, when an investor approaches global small caps, what would you say is the, the risk profile of this asset class? Like how does it compare across other maybe equity strategies? I think naturally you'd assume that it's high risk because you're talking about smaller companies. So these global small cap sector, I'm sure they explain, was anywhere from a couple hundred million or two billion to say 10 billion in market cap. Mm-hmm. So naturally smaller companies, you'd assume it's slightly higher risk than say investing in Apple or Microsoft. But that said, over the long term, the returns from global smalls have essentially been slightly better on a risk adjusted basis than uh, large caps, even with that high level of volatility. So slightly higher volatility, slightly higher return over the long term. Who would the global small caps sector be suitable for? I think naturally it's suited to those seeking growth from their portfolios or within the growth allocation of their portfolios. But uh, personally, the way we build portfolios, an allocation to global smalls is appropriate for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. and unless you're completely focused on capital protection, some level of growth from a, an asset class like this that's so diverse makes sense for essentially every portfolio. So global small caps, uh, I'm getting the feeling that investors who are looking for that, that global growth element in the portfolio will be, will be looking to allocate to this in their portfolios. How do you see global smalls typically being used in portfolios? And maybe if you give us an example of an allocation. Yeah, I think the, the most important thing with global smalls is understanding their characteristics and the, and the benefits or correlation benefits they have with the rest of the equity market. I see most people using it as a complement, not a core. So given the size of the companies and the inherent volatility that comes with smaller companies, that's always going to be a smaller allocation within, an, within a global equity or within an equity uh, portion of a portfolio generally. Uh, in terms of specifics, 
if you think uh, the way we look at portfolios is we split global equities and domestic equities evenly at the moment. That's our kind of strategic asset allocation recommendation. You generally have no more than, say, 10 to 20% of your global equity allocation in small caps as, a, as an ancillary or a complement to your, your core. So naturally, your core, whether that's low cost or active, would be anywhere from 40 to 50% of your portfolio. And then by comparison, a small cap allocation would be 10 to 20%. Mm. So if you think if your uh, allocation to global equities is 30% within a balanced growth portfolio, 10 to 20% of that is 3 to 6% mm-hmm. of a total portfolio. Okay. So not, not immaterial and, and it will have a meaningful impact if returns are strong. And if you're, uh, say you've got a higher risk profile, you'd be towards that 20%, I imagine, and the allocation may be larger anyway. Exactly. If you've got a higher growth profile, one, your global equity allocation would be higher. And then potentially if you're uh, seeking higher returns, then you might even increase that 20, 10 to 20% allocation within global equities up to 30 or 40. Mm-hmm. So in your experience dealing with investors who allocate to global small caps, what are some of the ways that people tend to go wrong? I think one of the biggest ones is assuming they're much higher risk than what they are. So naturally, you hear small or mid-caps. I think you, the other speaker is probably talking about small and mid grouped together as SMIDs. And there's a natural assumption that being small is significantly higher in risk. But as they probably mentioned, and as I mentioned before, uh, long-term, over the long-term, smaller companies have tended to outperform larger companies. And that's because pretty much every company in the world, apart from the unicorns that started to come out at $100 billion in the last few years, actually started as a small or medium-sized company. So the examples like Nike or MasterCard that were once small and mid-cap global SMIDs. Uh, and I think this assumption that they're higher risk uh, is one thing that, that kind of people get wrong. Another one is not sizing the position appropriately. So yes, in we, 2022 is a perfect example where there was a significant amount of volatility. You don't want to hold a global small or any type of small cap strategy at 50 to 60, 70% of your global equity allocation. So don't over allocate, similar to you wouldn't over allocate to smaller companies that you're investing in directly. Mm. And the final one was not being patient. So 2022, again, perfect example. After two incredible years of returns from the sector, uh, they fell off quite heavily in the sector generally and the Russell 2000 index fell off. Uh, So it is very much a seven to 10 year allocation within portfolios. Right. You can't, yeah, can't just sell out when when markets fall because you're talking about smaller companies involved in the economy that are growing. So it requires patience and not short-term momentum driven. Mm-hmm. How about in terms of, you know, as an advisor, you have a decision to make whether you choose a passive approach to a sector or an active approach. When it comes to global smalls, how do you see that balance? I think this is definitely one sector where we think you have to be active. The universe is too big. I know there's probably five different answers for how big the universe is Mm -hmm. from anywhere from 8,000 companies to 20,000 companies around the world. Mm -hmm. And when there's that many companies, there's a thing called, you call analyst arbitrage, where there's less analysts covering these, the companies within this universe. Um, you know, for instance, something like Amazon might have 22 analysts covering it and then a global SMID might have one. Mm. or two and they might only be in Sweden or wherever the company is listed. So given there's less analyst coverage and research, it's actually, it can be more rewarding to be active. If you're able to do better research and more in-depth research on a company, you can find mispricings and gives you the potential for outperformance. And I think the S&P market intelligence consistently show both domestically and globally that 
smaller company active managers outperform their benchmark more than large cap uh, active managers. And I think the, the main reason was evidenced in the, when, when was the meme stocks and that was 2021. Mm. Uh, the, I think the Russell 2000, all the small cap indices, because of how fast the market cap of AMC and GameStop grew, they actually became part of the index quite quickly. So you don't necessarily want to be holding the companies that are share prices going up the fastest in a sector that can be prone to that sort of momentum trading. So we've heard from fund managers throughout the Masterclass series talking about different strategies and, and their own strategies. When it comes to global small caps, what are the questions that you would ask a, a fund manager? I think one of the biggest ones is position sizing and how do you go about position sizing and how aggressive that's, that is, you know, how how big will you allow one of your holdings to go? Because if you get a mid-cap company or a small-cap company right, it can increase pretty quickly in, in size within the portfolio. So what are the restrictions uh, within those holdings? How do you determine those? Um, in the last few years, you've seen some strategies have the best returns in their history and the next you have the worst returns and you kind of don't want that. You want to know that you know, you're going to get persistent returns or consistent returns over multiple years. Uh, the second one would be what do you do when a company graduates um, as in if they move out of the small and mid-cap index, are they forced to sell that company as soon as it, it leaves or are they able to keep writing those earning revisions into, a, into you know, the next index before they have to sell out? The third one is whether they have any large institutional mandates. It's probably more relevant on a domestic basis, mm-hmm. but it's quite a small market and the universe of companies is small and the liquidity on liquidity across a lot of the companies is lower. So if uh, an individual fund has a large institutional mandate that could be pulled at, at any time, there's a risk that they sell the more liquid uh, mm. uh, stocks within the portfolio uh, to fund that redemption, and then you get left with what's, what's remaining. So always being wary of that and making sure it's a reasonably even split between wholesale, retail, institutional. Mm. A lot of the fund managers will tell you up front, or at least the researchers will know as well, if you yeah. have access to that as an advisor. Yeah. Definitely. It's less, less of an issue anymore. I think there's just examples in the past where it was local, uh, where it's definitely less liquid in Australia because small cap here is smaller than globally. So mm. it's less of an issue, but it's always worth knowing who you're investing alongside and if there's if there's a risk. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you know, seven to 10 years. This is an asset class where it's genuinely important to be seven to 10 year focused. Yeah. Um, but you also mentioned that high, the, the potential for higher returns over time, which would have a lot of people licking their lips, thinking, you know, this is a great sector to allocate to. It comes with a higher amount of variance, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so the question that naturally becomes for a lot of investors and a lot of capital allocators um, is when do you expect this asset class to perform well and in which environments might you think that it doesn't perform quite so well? I think clearly 2022 rising bond yields isn't good for small caps, but I think it's probably the same case for a lot of parts mm-hmm. of the of the equity market. Uh, to be honest, it depends on the approach of the underlying manager. So similar to large caps, uh, if you've got a style bias, whether that's growth or value, it can perform differently in different environments. I'd say smalls can perform reasonably well in most economic environments, but it really depends on what they're mm-hmm. holding. So if they've got if they're very much growth focused. Which, with the, which they can tend to be. You know, if you've got high allocations to healthcare, uh, technology, consumer companies, then lower, lower economic growth, lower interest rates are generally a positive for that part of the sector. But then a lot of the world's largest, mine, or more, you know, the growing mining companies and some of the new lithium green energy producers 
actually sit in material. So mm. it's very much a more uh, cyclical uh, approach as well. So I'd say they can operate in both, um, but it depends on, on the style or the approach of the underlying manager. Well, Drew Meredith from Water Partners, thanks for joining me. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to this masterclass on global small caps featuring Fairlight, Ausbill, Evergreen Consultants and Model Partners. I think you'll agree we've had a star-studded lineup for this investing masterclass. If you enjoyed hearing our experts' insights, I really do want to hear from you. If you find these sessions valuable or just want to get involved, let me know. This is especially the case if you're a fund manager, consultant, researcher or financial planner who can talk to us and take us on a journey into your speciality. Just reach out to me using the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.